In this episode of Tim Talk, a discussion about the history of racism and segregation in the medical profession with Dr. James Fullwood. Thank you for joining us for Tim Talk. I'm Tim Dentry, President and CEO of Northern Light Health. Through this podcast, we hope to break down barriers, embrace diversity, and focus on issues of racial, social, and medical justice. We want to listen and learn by tapping into the many voices of diversity that we have across our health system and our state. This podcast provides a forum for our listeners to share an experience of growth toward a culture that cares for one another, toward a culture that cares for one another. That's what Northern Light is looking for. Our goal is to create a shared understanding of the issues that exist and find a better path forward. My guest today is Dr. James Fullwood, a physician of podiatry at Northern Light Sebastocook Valley Hospital and a member of our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. He is a national delegate to the Historic National Medical Association, which promotes the collective interests of physicians and patients of African descent. He is also the creator of the Maine Medical Society, which is a local affiliate of NMA. In addition, Dr. Fullwood has created an international podiatry program and has traveled to Nigeria to teach in medical schools, conduct academic research, and influence politics in an effort to create parity in medicine for underserved populations. Dr. Fullwood, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you for having me. And we've known each other for, I guess, a couple of years now, worked more closely together in the, over the last year, the crazy COVID year, but also as we committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and so working together on that council, I hope I, I may be allowed to call you James. Is that okay? Definitely. All right. So here we go. Your resume of work, my friend in the area of promoting inclusiveness in medicine is inspirational to me. I've greatly enjoyed getting to know you through our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council of Northern Light Health. We share a path of life experience and time spent immersed in the cultures of parts of Africa. For me, it was East Africa, mainly Ethiopia, and for you, West Africa. I wonder if we can start with this question for you. How has your international experience changed the way that you think about, perceive, and act upon racial, social, and medical justice matters universally, but also right here in Maine? Well, let's start with the perceived. It was probably, I would say, about seven years ago, I started traveling to uh, Nigeria specifically three, four times a year. And my perception of what healthcare should be was very siloed because of my experience here in the United States. That's all I had really seen outside of visiting other countries. But spending time in in West Africa, it afforded me the opportunity to learn the history, understand um, how their systems of healthcare developed. And that made me begin to think about our own development of our healthcare system in the United States. Because how we look back on our history, it determines how we engage our present. The West African, or rather the Nigerian healthcare entity, was specifically built 
to benefit the crown in Britain. It was a colony, much like the United States was colonized to benefit the crown in Britain. And it was the first true development of what we call, you know, a work health system. And when the crown no longer occupied the United States, right, we have the Revolutionary War, as well as Nigeria obtaining their independence in 1960, we see this void in the advancement and development of healthcare on both continents. So it maybe begin to do more research. So formalizing medicine in the United States came in 1910 out of Johns Hopkins with the Flexner Report. Remember that. Prior to that, it was much of the traditional medicines that we caused that, you know, herb, herbs, you know, mom and pop remedies, right, that ex exist in Nigeria as well as existed in the United States. So we had a good hundred years of that. And so that Flexner Report in 1910, what it did was it began to formalize what we did today know as traditional or research-based medicine. Nigeria hasn't had that ability yet to begin to develop into what we see as research-based medicine. It's getting there. In 1910, here we have this thing called Jim Crow, right? It was separate and not equal. Separate and equal came later on. So healthcare in the country was developed in an era that was separate and not equal. And it began to make me realize that many of our today's struggles about access to care, affordability of care, right? We've been dealing with this for a long time. And it makes me think, Tim, you know, here we are, a young country, the United States, 1865 to 1867, Emancipation Proclamation, uh, right? Uh, our president has been assassinated. Now, Andrew Johnson, not Andrew Jackson, Andrew Johnson becomes the president. Now he has a refugee crisis on his hands. Sounds familiar? Of all these new African slaves that are now refugees, not yet Americans, in an undeveloped healthcare system. How do they get healthcare? What about jobs? What about clinics, hospitals? Do these things even exist? So we find that if we look at our history, Many of the things that we suffered from then, we suffer from today, and we're still trying to develop answers for. So, it, so it, that's a big, big question uh, with very little time to dig into. But I hope that with a little bit of background and history, Tim, uh, that, that kind of sheds a light on where we are. Oh, that's terrific. And, you know, James, you struck several chords with me. One is that, you know, the old saying, uh, if you don't learn from from history, you learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And uh, you just, you know, cited a, a very good centuries old example. That's exactly, I believe, what we're what we're working with and living with right now. And you use the word siloed. And I, I absolutely uh, resonate with that because, you know, I think the medical industry, if you will, in our country is very siloed. And as we know, the it was built upon the economic incentives for driving more high cost, more care at the you know end of life, more save the day when a crisis is underway, more critical care, more quaternary hospitals and, and things of that nature as a, with very little done in the front end. And I think that's part of 
where our country was hit so hard by COVID, for example, is because we haven't invested enough on the front end, whether it's herbalists. And I'm going to ask you a follow-up question on that, a a more of a family-oriented question, but those kinds of things, the preventative measures and and more screenings, more outreach, more connection, as opposed to organizations waiting to come to us in our front door. And that's one thing, that's what I mean by a culture of caring that starts with caring for one another, because we want to have a health system that doesn't uh, identify itself, we don't identify ourselves as we are behind these four doors, these four walls behind these doors waiting for people to come in. You know, we have to be connected in the community and connected with people. And I think that's a, that's a, one of the big lessons learned for sure. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Talking about COVID, I was in Nigeria several months ago, uh, you know, three times in 20, uh, 2020. And when COVID hit really hard, guess what people did? People on the ground. They went to back to 5,000-year-old medicine. They went back to traditional medicines that they've used for ailments that look like COVID. And they began to market these things all throughout Africa, not just West Africa, even South Africa. Um, so, uh, you know, blending the, the past and, uh, and, and the future we we can do some great things, you know, just because the area is impoverished doesn't mean that they don't have great ideas. If you think about Dr. James Smith McCoon, the first African-American who was uh, trained in, in, in Scotland, he, he trained in Scotland, in Glasgow. He began to look at traditional African-American methodologies of medicine and mix those with the contemporary medicine, you, you know, found in, in, in Europe. And he became extremely famous throughout New York. He was a good friend of Frederick Douglass. He was a partner in advocating for health care for all and a great abolitionist. You think about our two, the, the very first two African-American um, medical students who graduated to become doctors. Guess where they're from? They're from Maine, Bowdoin University. They graduated the first two on the ground. One of those uh, residents went back to uh, what is modern-day Liberia to create a hospital and a school. This is back in the 1800s, you know, 19, early 1900s. People are, you know, coming up with these great ideas and trying to, like you said, Tim, develop ways to treat people who are in the poor, underserved, who, have, who don't have access to care. It, it's happened on both sides of the you know, on the big pond. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, human and personal stories are great ways to get across what we care about and are passionate about. I try to work that into a lot of the things that I say, because I feel like I can connect with people closer that way. And you do that. You have that gift. You shared with me a story of your grandfather when we talked earlier this week and his vocation in non-traditional medicine. Uh, Would you mind sharing that story with our listeners? And if you can then really, you know, put it in the context of medical justice and, you know, meaning the structural things that inhibit access to quality health care from your perspective. So my grandfather, uh, Charles Fullwood, he he was an amazing man. He passed away several years ago at, at 100 years old. He lived during a time during Jim Crow where 
African-Americans had to actually pay to go to high school. He was the eldest of 12 children. So he went to work at the age of eight years old to be able to pay for high school for his younger siblings. He always wanted to be a doctor. He wound up becoming a reverend in a local church uh, and was on radio uh, up until his 90s. But his passion was herbal medicine, actual herbal medicine, not the ones that you find in the store. And so I remember as a kid growing up in the South, him teaching me stories about when they didn't have money to go to doctors, they didn't have access to care. They didn't have roads sometimes to get to the local hospitals. So they created their own liniments, you know, using St. John's wort and other traditional medicines to cure things from ant bites to mosquito bites to muscle pain to toothache pain, things that people deal with on a daily basis. That it was pretty amazing that those traditional African and slave remedies are still found today in South Carolina and the Gullah country and lower eastern North Carolina and South Carolina and Mississippi, believe it or not. Uh, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, they're still around. And you can find that in northern Maine. You know, when I first got to northern Maine, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, for example, uh, salt pork, the salt from the pork. You know, they would place that in the wounds in the South to draw out infection. Well, they do it up here in Maine, too. You know, bag bomb. It seemed like bag bomb was a cure for everything. But, you know, imagine being in rural Maine in the early 1900s and not having access to care. Black folks in the South and other rural areas had those issues. So we had to lean on our, uh, our forefathers and, and, and traditional ways of using what's around us uh, for survival. Uh, so, so yeah, that, he's he's a, he's a, he's a, he's my champion. Wow! Thank you both, Misters Fullwood, James and Charles. God bless them. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask of me? Yes, I'm going to throw the question back at you. You know, we we've both often talked about our experiences and the way that we you know have interacted with other cultures and the way we think about and perceive and act upon racial justice and social medical matters, kind of talking back and forth. And I really want to know what are the structural barriers you see based upon your experience that contribute to medical equity and, and, and social justice? What do you think? Yeah, let me put it in the context of the, first of all, my, my career path that was very traditional in you know medicine and the healthcare industry in America. But then I disconnected from that for a bit, and I spent my time internationally. And two years, as I've said before on these podcasts, living in Ethiopia and trying to help the Ethiopians develop their hospital sector of their health system. And then the subsequent nine years, so I did international work for over a decade, I was with Johns Hopkins, and they have an international wing. And I traveled for the first few years in many countries where uh, they have different um, operations and clinical things and research things and all that. But then six years living in the Middle East uh, in Abu Dhabi, uh, and I led two of their hospitals uh, that we were contracted to to help them with their hospital infrastructure as well. So I had that. Pers- I had both of those perspectives, U.S. And then international. And what I saw, what I contrasted was that, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, healthcare for all. Well, in Ethiopia, 
The per capita income was low. They had a lot of chronic health issues and things of that nature. But their health plan, they had, they had a health plan. It was a very structured health plan. They, did, they were resource short by every way you wanted to define it. But their philosophy and their commitment was healthcare for all. And we don't have that in this country. There it was, as you said, you know, the... Um, you know, people in Nigeria that, you know, rallied and used some of the the, uh, the same kinds of, of treatments and protocols that they had built up and passed down through the generations for thousands of years. And that's what a lot of the uh, a lot of the individuals did and the, uh, the, the people did of Ethiopia as well is they they have that community sense. I think here one of our barriers is that it's more of an individual sense. And it's more of a, you know, you're on your own kind of thing. And if you have health coverage or, or what have you, that's one thing. But there's, you know, we aren't going to guarantee health care for all. We aren't going to commit to health care for all. Now, some would argue that. Some would say, there, well, of course we do. Anyone can go in an emergency department and receive care. Okay. Or if you're uh, 65 years old, you're covered in Medicare. Okay. But... Then when you look at the communities, and this is why I love what Northern Lights all about, and I'm so thankful that I'm here and I'm not international anymore, because what our passion and our commitment is toward is to great embrace with the communities where we serve and to be community treasures there. You can't do that unless you are connected to the people in those communities. And you can't be connected to those people in those communities unless you appreciate and embrace and are open to and are thinking through different ways you can care for different needs within those communities. And many of those needs have gone undetected, not to the people in the communities, but to healthcare providers and to the healthcare economic system, which is geared more toward, like I said, the latter end of life or highly complex procedures, et cetera, by the way, if you have health coverage. So to me, and again, you know, as I have gone out on, on limbs, on, like I just spoke to, some folks say, well, you know, that's so political. It's not political to me. It's human. And we are blessed with the opportunity to be in a position where we can do something so positive that maybe has never been done, but to really make sure that the, the individuals that comprise our communities, that we look at them as individuals and we try to identify where are their gaps in our way of delivering care, our way of reaching out, that are creating complexities in their health. I can give many examples of that, of what's going on right now in COVID, but we're trying to be fact-driven, first of all. And so we have seen the, for example, people that are being admitted to hospitals and then uh, having procedures and follow-up and that kind of thing, that's gone down. I really believe that that's, and that's not just in Northern Light, that's not just in Maine, it's really across the country. And a lot of people are now talking about and analyzing, so why is that? 
you know, and right now, again, as we're recording this, it's we're still in the throes of COVID. So they're thinking, okay, it must be related to that. Yes, but what can we learn from that? Are we as accessible or are we a little less accessible? You know, are we going to the communities? I love Dr. Callender's approach to making sure that we had sufficient organ supplies and, and there wasn't a sense from the community that they wanted to stay away from that kind of thing. He said he went to the community and said, so this is what we need to do. How can we empower you? How can we work with you to do that? To me, when we ask questions of medical justice, it's about the overarching commitment. What is what is what's the values? What are the values that we base that on? To me, it is the value. It should be the values of healthcare for all. We we don't have that value, so that's strike one to put it in baseball terms. And secondly, we need to have a a, a justice-driven medical delivery system. By then saying. And are we going to find out, are we learning as much as we can about the health of the communities and the individuals within the communities? So going out from that, and we're starting to do that now a bit, but we're just scratching the surface. We're doing it now because we now can be more data-driven. I mean, one of the benefits of a unified electronic health record is we can mine data like crazy. So now we're, we are determining, well, why is it that a given population in a given neighborhood has a higher incidence of diabetes? But why is that? Let's not just assume that it's, well, it's, it's lifestyle, it's genetic or what, what have you. Why don't we start asking a question, and so what can we do about it? Because we really can influence those things. So I think it's, it's a long-term journey. And I think that the next step then when you're date when you have the right values and then you have the right structure of making sure you're not just waiting but you're using data and you're going out to the communities then it's making sure that we gear all of our resources to really be on that front end connection more so than we do right now and that's a tough one because all of the uh, you know we need to have financial health economic health and so much of the economic stimulation, if you will, in our health system is in the back, isn't on the front end. It's on the back end. But we are proving right now, for example, in the uh, vaccination initiative, we don't care that there's no, no economic incentive on the front end. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do and it's a historic thing to do. And we all will be looking back on these days hopefully with our children and grandchildren, hopefully when we're 100 and you're talking to your grandchildren, inspiring them, just as Charles did to you, that we'll be able to say, and you know what, when the, when the community needed us to step up, we did it in the most caring and sensitive and accessible way we possibly could. I think it, it's a complex question that we're going to learn more about over time, uh, but that's our commitment to make sure that we become masters at understanding what medical justice looks like and what we're going to do about it. Thank you, Thank you very much. That was, that was great. That was great. Thank you as, as well for, um, for being my honored guest and, and colleague and friend. Thank you. And thank you, our podcast listeners, too. So until next time, I'm Tim Dentry, encouraging you to listen and act to promote our culture of caring, diversity, and inclusion. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Tim Talk. Please join us on March 18th when we begin a new series on healthcare in Native American communities.